Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of Monitor Monday. On today's broadcast, the unresolved mystery continues concerning the recent suspension of a prepayment review. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel joins us later in the broadcast to report our lead story. For the latest news on the social determinants of health, we'll hear from Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan will also have the Monitor Money listener survey. Big changes are coming to IRF providers. Angela Phillips is standing by with that report. Fane whistleblower Mary Inman is standing by in London to report on how a hospital was used for money laundering purposes. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, everyone. Did you miss me last week? I was mad at myself for scheduling a flight at that time because there was just so much to report. Just over a week ago, the 2020 proposed outpatient, physician, earth, sniff, and home health care rules were released, followed by the inpatient final rule. Although that's over 5,000 pages of rules, um, it, you have to understand it's double-spaced, and if you know how to read the rules, you can skip over some of the content, but it really is still is a daunting task. Uh, but if I give away all the good stuff in those rules, you won't listen to my Rack Monitor webinar tomorrow, so here are only a few of the tidbits. First, CMS is proposing to remove total hip arthroplasty from the inpatient-only list. That means we'll be in the same situation with hips that we have been for, with knees for the past 18 months, trying to figure out who can be done as inpatient and who should be outpatient with no new clues from CMS. But just to make it more complex, CMS is also proposing to allow total knees at ambulatory surgery centers. I wonder if those docs who insisted that all total knees should be done as inpatient will be as insistent in 2020 if they own a surgery center and want to start doing Medicare patients at their own ASC. There's also the issue of length of stay at a surgery center. The regulations state that the patient should be expected to be discharged before midnight, but that's different than prohibiting patients from staying after midnight. Can you say loophole? CMS is also proposing to start a prior authorization program for five surgeries that often ride a fine line between being medically necessary and being cosmetic surgery, such as blepharoplasty. The proposal was short on details, so I wonder if this is simply CMS sending up a test balloon to see the response. Now, you may have been following the proposed changes to the physician coding of office visits, and CMS once again channeled Emily Latella and said never mind to the blended payment rate that they proposed last year. They are back to paying each code as a separate rate, but they're continuing to propose reducing the documentation needed to choose a code. Now, if they would only adopt the same proposal for hospital-based physicians, we might stop seeing those charts with a 12-point review of systems negative, especially since we know that probably nine of those 12 systems were never actually reviewed. 
And in the I, you've got to see it to believe it category, I present on your screen this tweet from Seema Verma, the administrator of CMS. As you can see, she is making fun of her agency's rule that requires a three-day inpatient stay for a Medicare beneficiary to access their Part A SNF benefit. I'm not sure what to make of the fact that she tweeted about this. We can only hope that it means that we may finally see some action on this issue and not that she's simply making fun of her own agency's regulations. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. The Monitor Monday Rack Report is also our lead story. Here now is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning and happy Rack Monitor Monday. This morning, I want to talk to you about two very strange occurrences that happened last week to two of my clients. One client was in Hawaii. One client was in Montana. You know the TV show, Stranger Things. This webinar is called Even More Stranger Things. Obtaining an injunction in federal court to lift a suspension of Medicare or Medicaid funds is rare, especially, especially 10 years ago. But in the last five years, it has become more and more prominent. So last week, I had two clients who suffered Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement suspension. As I was furiously preparing to draft the injunctions for federal court, the prepayment review suspension was mysteriously lifted. I can say that in 20 years of my legal work, I've never seen prepayment review lifted, much less two in the same week. So I've been trying to explore the possible reasons behind the lift of the suspensions because providers across the country that are subject to reimbursement suspensions, whether by a RAC, a MAC, a ZPIC, or the government, may be able to prevail if this mystery could be solved. I talked to both clients. Both clients had contacted their senators in their jurisdiction. One was red, one was blue. It seemed political affiliations did not matter when the state was about to lose a very much needed healthcare provider for the poor and elderly. Both senators from different states and different sides of the aisle intervened and contacted the state health agency in one case and CMS in the other. Remember from past broadcasts that a federal regulation, 42 CFR 455.23, states that states must suspend reimbursement upon credible allegations of fraud. Well, after the debacle in New Mexico in which 15 healthcare providers were accused of fraud, and subsequently put out of business, New Mexico legislatures passed a statute that provides due process to healthcare providers in these cases. It's the first of its kind nationwide and I helped draft it. I received a telephone call from a senator in a different state last week who's interested in creating a law in her state similar to New Mexico's law. This senator wants to know whether it's possible to draft a state statute that allows for due process even though the federal regulation states that reimbursement must be withheld upon credible allegations of fraud. I said, of course you can. All a state needs to do for proper due process is to draft a regulation or statute that defines good cause or when good cause should be implemented. The mystery was solved, at least in these two cases. In the words of our president, one of the key problems today is that politics is such a disgrace Good people don't go into government. In this case, the upshot is get to know the politicians in your area. 
If, however, a state senator is not at your disposal, remember that in the past five years, injunctions have become more and more prevalent to lift reimbursement suspensions. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up in about nine and a half minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from Alan Fink, Samnick, David Glazer, Angela Phillips, and Mary Inman calling in live from London. This is Monday. It's August the 12th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. Here's an important announcement from Rack Monitor. The 2020 inpatient prospective payment system is here. That means your facility has 60 days to operationalize new regulations from CMS. Failure to comply leads to risk issues associated with compliance, revenue, and patient dissatisfaction. But there is good news. A webcast tomorrow will help you and your team prepare for these new regulations. Policy expert Dr. Ronald Hirsch will review the new regulations that take effect October 1st. Register now to attend CMS 2020 Rule Update for Care Management and Utilization Review. That webcast is tomorrow, Tuesday, August 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, click on the upcoming webcast tab in today's broadcast and save $40 by using the coupon code MONDAY at checkout. Thanks, Clark. And good news, now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast Series. Sign up now for a free three-day trial. Click on the tab above or visit the Rack Monitor Bookstore. And now for the Monitor Money Risky Business Report, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So frequent guests Shannon DeConda and I were discussing a really good question recently. If a majority of a visit, an E&M visit, is spent counseling and coordinating care, are you required to use time disregarding the key components, even if they would yield a higher level of service? Now, I'm confident that the answer is no, but I see why the question comes up. Both the CPT manual and the Medicare manuals have similar language that can easily be interpreted as suggesting that once you've got 50% counseling, time is all that matters. Here's what the CPT manual says. Quote, when counseling and or coordination of care dominates more than 50% of the encounter with the patient or family, um, then time shall be considered the key or controlling factor to qualify for a particular level of E&M service. The claims processing manual is somewhat similar, saying that the duration of the visit is an ancillary factor and does not control the level of service to be billed unless more than 50% of the face-to-face time is spent counseling. Now, that could imply that if counseling is half the visit, time exclusively determines the code. But does it? I don't think so. I think this is an example of ambiguous writing. The CPT manual says that you use time when counseling or coordinating of care dominates the visit. The E&M guidelines use predominantly. They say at the case of the visits which consist predominantly of counseling or coordinating care. While that language, and for that matter my speaking, isn't perfectly clear, I believe that they're trying to say when time would give you a higher level of code than you would receive from the history, exam, and medical decision-making, Then you focus on time. But if those key components lead you to a 99215, counseling and coordinating of care did not dominate the visit. It wasn't the predominant factor 
in that time dominates or is predominant when it yields a higher code. If the key components yield a higher code, then those key components predominate. In other words, you choose your code based on the higher of the three key components or time. While we're talking about time, I've seen many contractors and consultants take the typical times associated with E&M codes and then assert that a physician's day was impossible. In one example, they claimed that a physician was working more than 16 hours a day, actually closer to 24. They got there because they attributed 25 minutes for every 99214 and 15 for every 99213. But I watched this physician do a 99214 in about seven minutes and a 99213 in about four. That would take an eight-hour workday and make it 24 hours because there was about a three-to-one ratio there. Now, it was really impressive watching him gather data rapidly. While shaking hands, he would note the patient's nourishment, level of distress, breathing, their gait, their mental orientation, and their skin. If you conduct your exam in history in five minutes, and then you spend the next six minutes discussing issues with the patient, you don't wind up with a lower level of service than if you had skipped that discussion entirely. So I want to extend a big thank you to Hall & Oates for teaching us that when you have a comprehensive exam and a comprehensive history, you can bill a 99215. Even if you did it, you did it, you did it in a minute. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. What's the latest development in healthcare's fastest growing topic? Alan Fink Samnick now joins us to report on the social determinants of health. Ellen also has the Monitor Monday listener survey, and good morning, Ellen. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. A range of issues comprise the state of the social determinants this week. First came release of the 2019 County Health Rankings Report. For those unfamiliar, County Health Rankings and Roadmaps provides data on health outcomes across every county in the nation, with rankings on quality of life, mortality, plus a number of other domains. This year's findings specifically emphasize the challenges wrought by housing sufficiency and affordable housing on health incomes. Experts suggest housing costs should not exceed 30% of the monthly household income. As I read this, I suddenly stopped to think if it were true for my husband and I or for our adult son. At over 30%, the strain is known as housing cost burden. Translation, the higher the housing costs, the greater the likelihood of homelessness. The report highlighted more than one in 10 households spend over 50% of their income on housing costs. This 50% metric is known as severe housing cost burden. Now, this severe housing cost burden is highest in large urban metro areas and lowest in rural communities. But since the real estate crisis and simultaneously occurring economic downturn of 2008 to 2010, severe housing cost burden has increased in over half of all rural counties, though decreased in urban areas. 
Housing insufficiency is one of many issues that plague rural communities, making those populations among the fastest growing new faces of the social determinants. For persons experiencing severe housing cost burden, 15% deal with food insecurity, 22% have children in poverty under the age of 18, and 19% self-rated them in poor health. Next on the tech front came an exciting collaboration that was all over the news last week between the Alliance for Better Health, a health reform organization, and Schenectady, New York-based NVP Healthcare. The newly formed Health Alliance Independent Practice Association will distribute $800,000 to promote linkage of area residents to social service needs as emergency housing, food, domestic violence resources, employment, and caregiving, all those wonderful resources across the social determinants of health landscape. Some 30 social service providers will use United Us, a new tech platform that allows real-time views of when persons receive recommended services. These efforts will enhance and streamline formally fragmented and inconsistent referrals between medical and social service providers in the region. Outcomes will also be tracked. The URLs for both the Healthy Alliance IPA and the county health rankings and roadmaps appear in the links for Ellen tab. Time for this week's Monday Monitor Survey, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors. So I've had the helm of this survey for now well over a month and appreciate the wonderful interest and feedback from our audience. Now, being an outcomes-driven case management professional, I want to make sure this survey continues to engage you. For this week's survey, I'm asking, which topic has the most appeal for you specific to the social determinants of health? A, new and innovative social determinants of health-specific initiatives and resources. B, new or proposed legislation targeting the SDOH. C, data, risk, and or predictive analytics programs focusing on the social determinants of health. Or D, reimbursement and or funding targeting the social determinants. I'll look forward to hearing, as I know our audience will. We'll check back with the survey in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. I was consultant and author, Alan Fink-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in the broadcast. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday IRF Report with Angela Phillips. The Monitor Monday IRF Report is brought to you by Change Healthcare. Change Healthcare provides technology-enabled revenue integrity services to help you improve efficiency, reduce costs, optimize revenue, and more effectively manage complex workflows. Visit changehealthcare.com. Here now is Angela Phillips. Thanks, Chuck. Welcome to our listeners. With the final rule for ERS for fiscal year 2020 now in the books, I'd like to quickly walk through the changes and updates and update everyone, not only on what was finalized, but more noteworthy, those provisions that weren't included in the final rule. And while the removal of the requirement for collection of FIM data provides some administrative relief to ERS, the increasing list of required SPADES data collection elements beginning for October 1, 2020 and impacting fiscal year 2022 is something we need to really prepare for. It's an outstanding list. It's a very long. First, the good news. Included in the items not finalized were the weighting of the motor score for CMG placement and the requirement to submit quality indicator data for all patients regardless of payer. Here's the overall rundown. 
Updates impacting payment included a 2.5% increase factor based on an original 2.9% increase in earth market basket less a 0.4% productivity adjustment, resulting in an overall increase in payment of $210 million for the industry. As already noted, CMS stepped back from the proposed use of weighted motor score to assign patients to CMGs and finalized the use of an unweighted motor score for CMG placement based on the rationale that this would allow providers an easier transition to use of quality indicator data for payment purposes, along with addressing industry comments and concerns relating to shifting emphasis to tasks like eating and away from patient mobility. We don't think that this is a permanent step back, however. The updated data parameters for classification of patients into the CMG groups using the quality indicator data were finalized, and that included updates to the CMG relative weights and average length of stay values. Updates related to quality indicator measures, however, are extensive, and they go well beyond this year. The rule finalized that two additional quality measures, both of which relate to medication reconciliation, no news to the industry. These data will be required beginning October 1, 2020, and impact ERF QRP compliance for fiscal year 2022. They include the transfer of health information to the provider and transfer of health information to the patient, and both require that the ERF provide a reconciled medication list at the time of transfer or discharge. CMS is also really upping the ante with more standardized patient assessment data elements, or SPADES, and is planning for future requirements, including the assessment of cognitive function and mental status, special services, treatments, interventions, medical conditions, comorbids, impairments, and social determinants of health, a topic our listeners are hearing about routinely on this broadcast and certainly need to follow. We appreciate Ellen's timely and helpful information in this area. Included in these requirements for fiscal year 2022 will be data elements related to pain interfering with sleep, therapy, and day-to-day activities. This list is long and will need some planning to assure adequate documentation and collection of data. Additional finalized uh, provisions include the update to the discharge to community measure to exclude baseline nursing home residents, removal of the published list of compliant ERFs on the QRP website, and a clarification that the determination of whether a physician qualifies as a rehab physician is now to be determined by the ERF. The final rule is long and complex, and while the current change, which shifts payment calculations to the collection of GG quality indicator data, is the immediate focus for Earth, there's lots to be preparing for for the SPADES data, where gathering this data digs a big hole in the provider's available administrative time. And finally, a reminder. For those of you that are planning to participate in the appeals settlement agreement, the deadline for submission of the expression of interest is September 17th. The process is fairly straightforward, so don't miss this opportunity if you plan to participate. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is considered to be one of the nation's foremost IRF authorities. How did a hospital become involved in a money laundering scheme? Calling in live from London at this hour is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning to you, Chuck. 
Last month, the Department of Justice announced that Kyle Marcotte, the owner of a Jacksonville, Florida area substance abuse treatment center, pleaded guilty to his role in a $57 million money laundering scheme and agreed to pay a forfeiture of over $10 million. The scheme Marcotte helped to orchestrate focused on laundering money through a hospital billing system. According to Marcotte's guilty plea, it all began in 2015 when Mr. Marcotte entered into an agreement with KTL Labs, a laboratory that supplied urine drug tests. Under an agreement with KTL Labs' owner, Marcotte's substance abuse treatment facility would send KTL all of its urine drug testing business in exchange for Mr. Marcotte receiving 40% of any insurance reimbursements connected to those tests. Per admissions in Marcotte's guilty plea, the lab owner then came to an arrangement with two hospitals, Campbelltown Graceville and Regional General Williston, to make the tests billable to private insurers and have them reimbursed at the hospital's favorable in-network rates. According to his guilty plea, Mr. Marcotte then brokered deals between other substance abuse treatment centers and the hospitals, pocketing 10% of the reimbursements and letting the other centers take 30%. The lab owner then acquired a hospital in Georgia, Chesapeake Hospital, which joined the scheme as well. Reimbursements were submitted from hospitals to the lab and then transmitted to two companies under Marcotte's control. Marcotte then directed some of the funds to individuals that controlled other substance abuse centers in an attempt to further the scheme. Finally, he used a portion of the money to purchase real estate and other, and, and other goods for himself. In total, Marcotte was responsible for causing over $57 million in transfers that involved at least 88 companies and individuals. Marcotte will be sentenced at a yet-to-be-announced date later in the year. While we are accustomed to thinking about money laundering schemes being the domain of banks and international financiers using a web of nested shell companies and offshore bank accounts, it is notable to see money laundering in the healthcare realm being accomplished through hospital billing systems. Let this be a reminder to healthcare providers and other Monitor Monday listeners to brush up on their anti-money laundering compliance training and protocols and ensure that they know their customers and have adequate controls in place to prevent money laundering and to detect and report suspicious financial activity. That's it for me, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Mary. Calling in live from London was famous of law attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law office of Constantine Cannon. And now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. So which topic has the most appeal specific to the social determinants of health for you and your organizations? Well, interesting results this week. 14, almost 15% said new and or innovative social determinants of health specific initiatives and resources. A little over 8% newer proposed legislation targeting the social determinants. 32% data, risk, and or predictive analytics programs focusing on social determinants. But the big winner, 45% reimbursement and or funding targeting the social determinants. Good information for me to have and to keep in mind for our future broadcasts. 
David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in today. You bet. So first off, it appears Internet Goblins ate the slide advancing at the beginning. So, uh, Ron, if you just want to comment quickly on the tweet, which hopefully the Internet Goblins have allowed now. Yes. So this is from uh, Administrator CMS Seema Verma, really kind of making fun of the three-day um, SNP regulation. And as I mentioned, I'm hoping it means that she's going to change that regulation. Um, I'll also note that today she tweeted about the way they price DME and made fun of the pricing structure. Humor on Twitter. Angie, question for you. How are organizations going to transition to collecting and using all of this data? Two factors. One is that 10-1 of this year, we are simply moving, not that it's simple, removing the SIM data collection and using the GG functional indicators for payment purposes. That's the immediate thing that organizations must look at and they got to train because the scoring is critical, the scoring is different, and we must have consistent scoring. Data is only as good as the accuracy of the data. And we have to start really looking at how accurate our data is. So that's the immediate thing. For 2020, I think it's going to be very important that we follow along with Ellen those social determinants of health, but also what data is being collected, who's collecting it, how are they trained. So we need transition plans that clearly incorporate that into our EMRs and um, that we train our staff and that we start using this data and start asking those questions. What does it mean? What are we going to do with the data? And how does it truly impact patient quality? That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sam Nick, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Mary Ian McCalling in live from London, and Angela Phillips. And a reminder, you can listen to all of the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device. And it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Beck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.